one of, I think, the worst things about being a stroke survivor. I actually remember everything. I was in a bubble. It was like being in a bubble where I just couldn't speak, couldn't communicate, couldn't tell anyone that I was okay, couldn't tell anyone that I wasn't okay, couldn't say, you know, my right side is not working. I couldn't say anything. I'm Charmaine Griffiths, Chief Executive of the British Heart Foundation and host of this special series of podcasts celebrating 60 years of pioneering research into heart and circulatory disease. As part of this series, I wanted to speak to some of our ambassadors and VIP supporters to learn more about their own personal health journeys and how the BHF's research has played a role in transforming or even saving their lives or those of loved ones. Hello, in today's episode we meet professional ice skater Alex Murphy. She will be a familiar face to any fans of ITV's Dancing on Ice as she has been crowned champion not once but twice, including in 2020 with her partner Joe Swash. She now hosts Celebs Go Skating, um, more of which we'll come to later, and I'm just so pleased she's here to uh, tell us our story. So Alex, huge welcome to our BHF podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited. <laughs> me too, me too as well. So Alex, we'd love to hear a bit more about your journey. Um, so take us back to 2012 when you were 24. Tell us a bit about what was happening in your life at that time. Oh, so I was 24 years old and I was actually figure skating on cruise ships. So I had been professional at that point, oh gosh, for like six years. Um, and I was training. I was probably in the best shape of my life, if I'm completely honest. That I was at the you know the top of my game, and unfortunately, whilst on the cruise ship, I, I suffered a, a major stroke, and I was um, landed off the cruise ships, and I was sent to a hospital in Tenerife. But the hardest part about it, I think, was that I had the stroke while I was in my skates, so I was actually just getting off the ice and. Yeah, I had a stroke behind the scenes, if that makes sense, in the backstage area while taking my costume off. My goodness. So what do you remember, Alex? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Everything, looking back at everything, I think you remember so much more in hindsight. And I now realize that there were symptoms leading up to it. You know, I was having really bad migraines, I remember, the week beforehand. And I consider myself such an athlete that I was like, oh, you just push through them. It's fine. You're fine. You'd have a migraine. That's okay. And I was noticing that the lights of the show were really bothering me the week leading up to it. And I would have to skate a show for an hour, and then I'd have to go back to my bedroom and lie down and then go back an hour later and skate the next mm -hmm. show because my eyes were just like killing me. So in hindsight, I can say, yeah, th there were symptoms that led up to it. Um, but I have one of, I think, the worst things about being a stroke survivor. I actually remember everything. I was in a, a bubble. It was like being in a bubble where I just couldn't speak, couldn't communicate, couldn't tell anyone that I was okay, couldn't tell anyone that I wasn't okay, couldn't say, you know, my right side is not working. You know, I'm drooping because I couldn't say anything. So as much as people think you don't remember when it happens, because you do kind of pass out in, in a way, mm -hmm. I actually remember everything. I remember everyone's faces. I remember how they looked at me. I remember who picked me up. I remember every mm -hmm. single thing of that, what happened during that time. I remember the nurses and like their concern. So fortunately and unfortunately, I was, I was fully conscious. And I think that's the hardest part about, you know, being a stroke survivor. A lot of people don't understand that when, when survivors are at that point that they can't communicate back. And even however many years from now, if I, heaven forbid, had been a survivor that couldn't still communicate, they still, a lot of them still do understand. And that is what I think is the most heartbreaking about the whole situation for me. That was my hardest bit, not being able to tell everyone how I was. Mm. Well, thank you for so openly sharing what was clearly a, a really tough experience. And I remember reading that that was for a period of around eight hours or so. So yes. that was 
it, um, I can imagine that was really difficult to kind of work through. My goodness. Yeah, it, it was like sheer panic, if I'm completely honest. I I couldn't communicate or say anything to anyone. And I couldn't, the only thing that I could do was I could cry. So I was starting to kind of hyperventilate in a way. And I was giving myself almost what looked like probably a panic attack. So people around me couldn't understand that I was having a stroke. You know, I was 24 and I looked like an athlete. I didn't look with any, like I had no pre existing conditions. They didn't know that I had had a heart defect since birth. I didn't know I had had a heart defect. So for me, it was just so sad to not be able to tell anybody what was happening to me, but also try to communicate with them. That that was, I think, the hardest part. It was eight hours of that. And then things were very confused for a very long time. I would say for about a month, I couldn't get my words right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I was able to figure out. I didn't know my parents' names. I didn't know where I was. I couldn't, I just couldn't put words to faces or things like that for such a long time after it. It was, that was a very frustrating time. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the first you kind of realized what was going on when, you know, the doctors came around and clearly you're, you're starting to be able to engage and speak and tell me a bit about that. I think, you know, I started to realize something was wrong when I I went into the the bathroom on the cruise ship when I was in my skates and I was changing out of my costume and I looked at myself and the first thing that I knew what was wrong was that I didn't know who I was. So I looked at myself and there was this girl standing staring back at me and I had absolutely no idea who it was and that gave me like an out, almost an out of body experience. And then from that point on, it was just like, what I do remember is a lot of faces, a lot of people looking at me and a lot of concern. And um, I actually, what is so crazy about it is they wheeled me down to the hospital ward on the cruise ship. And when I lay flat, I was able to speak. So I, I did say a few words when I laid down there after you know the first beginning of it, where I said, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I just was crying, but I was able to say a few words. And like, there were people around me that I knew their names and I you know called out to them. And obviously that was when I was having the stroke and the, the nurses were there and they were trying to calm me down. They brought in you know a, a whiteboard with, you know, what's your name? What letter is this? Who is your, who's your mom? You know, what's, how do you spell your name? Anything, nothing was happening. I just remember reading the restroom sign that said, restroom, wash your hands. And there was a, I was in my own little suite where I had a toilet in there as well. And I just kept saying, reading it in my head, going restroom, wash your hands, restroom, wash your hands. And eventually I shouted it out loud and the nurse came running in and she was like, great, good, restroom, wash your hands. Okay, what's your name? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so it, it all kind of things started to trickle and they did give me a pen and paper. And I knew that my name started with something like with a, a peak. So I knew that it was an A and I knew it ended in the same thing. So I actually, when I wrote out my name, I wrote an A and then I wrote an A at the end and then I put a line in the middle. And then like an hour later, I went back to it and I realized that it was, that was supposed to be the D, Alexandra. So when I filled it in, I slowly could fill in what it was, but it was heartbreaking to be honest, because I didn't know my parents' name. So when they're asking, you know, who do we call? I couldn't say Linda and John Murphy. They, you know, if they don't know who your parents are, who can they call? I was like, mom and dad. I didn't remember my parents' first names. So mm. that was, I think, when I realized something was wrong was when the speech and the writing were starting to come back, but they weren't coming back fully. That was the scariest bit. <laughs> and did you know you'd had a stroke? No. So when I got off the ship, they sent me at seven o'clock the following morning to Tenerife in the Canary Islands. And they brought me in for a CT scan. And then the man said to us, obviously, they speak Spanish there. So he was speaking in like a bit of broken English. He didn't fully know English. And the first thing he said was, you know, 
well, good news, it's not a brain tumor, and we don't think you have MS. And I was like, what? Well, I'd have a headache. I was like, things are coming back. I just have a really bad headache. You know, this can't be possible. And then I was like, surely maybe there's a language barrier here. I didn't understand at all. Yeah, you know, I didn't realize that it was a stroke, but the word stroke hadn't been thrown around just yet. And because everything was in another language, I just kind of remember it was just quite a, a blur. And it wasn't until, you know, they kept me for nine days. But what they did when they were there was they did every test that you can imagine. I had, you know, tests on my arteries, tests, like blood tests, everything that you can imagine and because they had to kind of rule it out because I was so young and when they finally came back with it they had these big scans and they said you know you've had this is shadowing on your brain this looks like a stroke but you look like you're a miracle case because you're now speaking again we're very happy that you're speaking again and I was just like this is insane and I was in the neurological ward with everyone who is, I would say the youngest person was probably 68, 70, and the rest were very, very old. So they weren't even really having me walk around too much because I had just, obviously, I was in the same boat as, as these older people, but there was nothing to relate to. And I'll, I'll never forget, they gave me a pamphlet and it was like, what happens when you've had a stroke? And then they sent me on a plane nine days later and I flew to the Canary Islands um, or from, from the Canary Islands to Miami. And it wasn't until I landed in Miami after the third doctor that I saw, the third neurological doctor that I saw that he was like, you know, this is a stroke and we need to treat it as such. And I don't think you realize what a stroke is. Let's, let's sit down and explain it to you. And obviously, I think as a, a kid, as a 24-year-old, you don't really hear that word very often. It's not a word that gets thrown around. It's not common knowledge. It's not, it's not like cancer that you hear. It's not, you know, even MS, I think I was more knowledgeable of, the, of, of that disease as I was than, than the word stroke. I was like, what's a stroke? I had no idea. Not, none at all. Um, for some of our listeners who are tuning into this podcast, they might not know what stroke is. Would you mind explaining so I think there's two types of strokes, correct me if I'm wrong. What I had was a blood clot to the brain. So basically my brain wasn't getting enough oxygen, which ironically enough, we found out forever. It had been like that since I was born because I was just born with a heart defect. You know, after they did all of these tests on me, um, the last test they did was an echocardiogram or yeah, I think it was called TEE. TEE, where they stick a tube down your throat, basically, and they just kind of fish around down there with a the camera to see what's going on in your heart. And they found that I had a hole in my heart and it was since birth, you know, there was nothing we could have done to prevent it. It was just a birth defect. And that was what was the cause of the blood clot to the brain, which ultimately is a stroke. So it all trickled back to being my heart more than my brain. <laughs> Now tell me about your family at this time, because you were so far from them and they must have been um, worried about you. How how were they when you got to Aww. see them? It was so sad. My, my parents, I'm an only child, so obviously spoiled with attention, clearly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my parents always come to visit me and they, you know, they come to every ice show that I've been on. They hadn't left me, you know, it wasn't that far away that, that I had seen them. And so they wouldn't allow my parents to fly out to Tenerife to the Canary Islands because they just kept saying, no, we don't know. We don't know what's wrong. There was a lot of communication in terms of, you know, language barriers that we couldn't tell them. So my, my mom and dad met me down in Florida when I was flown there to, to go to University of Miami where they did the surgery. And um, they, at this point, you know, had never heard of a 
I don't know, of a PFO, of a hole in your heart. They'd never heard of all of, all of this information that was being thrown at them. Obviously, I think, you know, my parents were older. They knew what a stroke was. Um, but unfortunately for them, this is a really sad story. They watched me go through it. And then my mom and dad had to get tested. And it turns out that my mom had a hole in her heart. So they tested a, 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 other members of my family and they said, look, you know, Linda, take care of yourself. You're going to be on an aspirin a day. We're going to monitor you, make sure you have a heart healthy diet. Um, you are born with this as well. It must have come from your mother's side. They tested my father and they said, oh, nope, you're fine. Live your life. And then less than a year and a half later, my dad actually had a stroke. So my dad had a stroke from the exact same thing that I had. So then we had to watch him go through it again. But mm. because my mother was so knowledgeable of everything that had just happened to me within the last year, you know, I can guarantee you her Google history is just everything about strokes. All she wanted to know was how did this happen to her kid? She yeah. saw the symptoms instantly with my father, called 911, and he was in a hospital bed in America within 11 minutes, um, and she saved his life. So ultimately, my dad also, they, mis they misdiagnosed him. He had the hole in his heart, and they went in and they fixed it for him as well. So all three of us have holes, which is just very rare. <laughs> It's like the perfect storm. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, what an experience it must have been for your family. I'm so glad yeah. your dad's all right. And, he um, is, and he's great. And thanks for the quick action of your mum. Now, you mentioned your, your PFO or patent foreman of Ali, which is the uh, medical yes, name, of course. that's what it's called, right? <laughs> for the hole in the heart. Um, and it's uh, obviously a congenital heart defect. Tell me a little bit about the surgery. What was that like? Yeah, the surgery was a bit scary because, I mean, I'm kind of like a go big or go home person. I, I had never had a surgery in my life. I hadn't even had, you know, a broken arm or anything like that. And out of all these years training and skating, touch wood, I had never been, I'd never been injured. So when they came in, they basically gave me two options. They said, you can live on blood thinners for the rest of your life. Um, you are 24 now and you won't be able to skate because obviously blades and ice skating and bruising and cutting yourself does not mix. So it would be blood thinners and no skating or it would be to have the surgery and we can get you back on the ice because we'll take you off the blood thinners after the surgery. And obviously it was a bit of a no-brainer. So I went in and I did have the surgery with a lovely, lovely doctor. Her name was Dr. Costanza and she was so young and – at this point in time, I had actually been contracted for the Dutch version of Dancing on Ice. And um, she said, listen, we're going to have to perform this surgery. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to this TV show. I'll come back in four months and you can do this surgery. And she said, no, honey, this is a life or death experience. We need to do it now. And I said, well, I have to figure out when we can do it now because I have to leave in two, like three weeks, I think it was at this point. And she cleared her schedule and she actually brought me in the following Monday. And gave, she was wonderful. And she did the heart surgery and she said, I know you can recover from this. And honestly, the surgery itself obviously wasn't comfortable and it wasn't wasn't amazing, but I had like a weird feeling that I felt like I was a bionic woman afterwards where I just felt like I was the tin man and I could do anything. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> if my heart can work on, you know, the small percentage of oxygen that it's been giving. With the extra. Yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm almost like Iron Man. Like I felt amazing <laughs> after. <laughs> so my dad and I always talk about how it, it was hard in the beginning because you could feel your heart like double pumping because it had been working so hard to to fix all this already problem that it had had. It had been doing double time. And then all of a sudden you get this little metal piece in it and it's it's amazing. It's like better than it ever was. <laughs> <laughs> and did you make the, uh, the, the Dutch uh, dancing on ice? I did. I went and three weeks later and I, I had um, 
had obviously pain and soreness because they go in through your femoral, femoral artery. So they go in through your groin. And I remember the first few days of training with my partner being like, you know, please don't touch me here. My rib cage is sore here. These are my issues, but I didn't want to tell anyone. And I actually didn't tell anyone until towards the end of the show when we were heading into the final. And um, yeah, we actually won the show three months to the day of my stroke. So it was three months later that we won that show. Incredible. <laughs> it's Incredible. Insane. And then we, you must have been really aware of it. Like you said, you were talking to your partner about all the moves um, and clearly as an athlete, really aware of your, your body as well. How did it feel? Were you nervous? How did you get your head around it almost? Yeah, I, th I think as an athlete, you, you're very in tune to your body. So I, re I even remember when the stroke was happening, um, there was a choreographer there, his name was Angelo, and he was with me when it happened and when I got pulled down to the hospital ward. And he, I was hyperventilating, which was obviously making it worse because I couldn't breathe. I was just panicking. And I remember him saying to me, he put his hands over my eyes and he said, calm down, Allie, you have to calm down. You have to understand, focus, focus. And I actually took it as like a, a skating competition. I just closed my eyes and I was able to get into my own head to calm myself down. And I've spoken to, you know, friends of doctors and people and they, they swear that because I knew my own body so well, I was able to almost shut myself off and teach myself how to do it. So I did kind of, you know, I was very in tune to what was happening around me, but I also knew my limits. So when we did go back to the show, I remember saying to my partner, yeah, don't touch me here. And I, I was bruised like a peach. Because at this point, I was still on blood thinners and I had bruises everywhere. They were covering me up with makeup all over my arms and my legs. And and you won as well. So I think you mentioned that was <laughs> the first time when, well, firstly, congratulations. And secondly, that was when you, uh, you I think you mentioned you started to tell people as well. So yeah, how so was that? How did your colleagues react? How did you tell them? So I actually, so ironically enough, it came out going into the... Um, finals of the show that I had had, a, had a, this surgery and a stroke and the casting director found out and she was not very happy about it. And she was like, you didn't tell us. And I said, well, it's private medical record. Like, why should I have to tell you? It could have jeopardized my job. Um, and she was not very nice about it, if I'm completely honest. Um, and at that point, I vowed to kind of not tell anyone about it again. So my partner knew, obviously, because he had to know. Um, and it came out at the show towards the end of, of the season. But we kind of, we very much downplayed it. And because of that, if I'm honest, I spent, I would say, another three, four years pretending it never happened and kind of living in this massive denial of, I don't want anyone to know I had a stroke because if they do, they'll think I'm weak. And if they think I'm weak, then I'm going to lose my job. Because at that point in time, I had just obviously had a public stroke on a cruise ship and they had taken my job away. They said I couldn't come back to cruise ships. And I had to kind of go back and forth with Royal Caribbean to convince them that I was healthy and to convince them that I could get signed off from a doctor because obviously once you've had a stroke, you are a bit of a liability and people worry about you and they don't really want to have that on their heads if heaven forbid something ever happened to you. So I did hide it. You know, we won in 2012 and it wasn't until I was on the the UK version of Dancing on Ice um, in 2017 and I didn't even speak about my story, nothing about it until 2018 with a charity over here, um, a small charity called Different Strokes. I, I wasn't willing to speak about it because I kind of had to hide it for those five years to just make sure everyone knew that I was back to myself and mm -hmm. to prove to myself that I, I had the ability to keep going on. Otherwise, I think it would have probably consumed me. It was I, I lived in denial, if I'm honest. 
What changed your mind? So you clearly the career was a factor and I can understand that. You talked about job security and that kind of risk part. But it sounds like something else changed in you as well. What changed? Yeah. So after that first year, I was on with Kem Setanay and he was lovely. And um, I had been approached by some other, you know, press people. I didn't realize how the press worked over here. And I know now that they love to dig into anything. So they found out <laughs> and they knew that I had a stroke and I didn't really want to speak about it. And then it was this small charity called Different Strokes. And they, this woman named Lauren, actually, she continued to reach out to me and she sent me a message and I told my mom about it. And she kind of gave me a bit of tough love. And she said, what you're doing right now is a disservice to every survivor around you. And if you don't tell your story, you are massively taking something away from people. And, and it kind of broke my heart, breaks my heart now. It makes me teary eyed because I, it was really hard to do. And my first, um, the first time I came out with it, I sat and I just had a full-blown breakdown as if I was having my stroke all over again. And I swear every time I speak about it, it does bring that back because you'll never get over it. It's not something that just goes away. And every day I wake up and I remember that I had a stroke. And every day I go to bed and I'm grateful that I can go to bed. But, the, you know, there were years for, I would say, three, four years after the stroke that I was worried about, will I wake up? Now, every time I speak about it and every time I, you know, mentor a child that's gone through it, I say child, but I mean, you know, like an 18 year old that's gone through it, it's a bit of, of a cathartic experience for me. And it's almost like me getting out the stress that I had, because I, I do think every stroke survivor will suffer with a bit of PTSD after it. It, it is a trauma, whether you mm. want to admit it or not. <laughs> Well, my goodness, what a mum for starters. <laughs> yeah, she's tough. <laughs> she's tough, but you're clearly close as well. But tough love, we all need it sometimes. <laughs> We've heard that so much actually from people who've had a, um, a heart attack or stroke that you the, the emotional kind of component of it is something that catches up with you. And, oh, uh, big time. Did you, have you um, sought any support yourself? Have you met other people with strokes or who've had similar events? So... Ironically enough, after I did have my stroke, um, and I didn't even really tell this story until recently, but after I had my stroke, my dad and I, before he had his, um, I was at home. And at this point, I, you know, I was kind of really recovering from surgery. I had never taken any time off. My body was sore. I couldn't even blow dry my own hair. I was, you know, 24 years old. My dad was blow drying my hair for me. And I remember <laughs> I was spending the day at home with him and my mom had gone to work and they weren't leaving me alone. They refused to leave me alone. So my, my dad stayed at home and he and I were watching this thing um, in America on ESPN, which is like Sports Center. But back then in 2012, they used to have these things where these chat rooms would pop up on the screen and the announcer would say, you know, write in if you want to talk to whoever the famous, you know, celebrity athlete was. So my dad was watching it and there was this guy and his name was Teddy Bruschi and he was a New England Patriot, American football player. And I loved him and I've loved him since I was a kid. And he had a stroke at 31. And oddly enough, he was on that day and it was write in your questions to Teddy Bruschi. And my dad was like, you should write in. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not writing. And he's like, just do it. Come on, just do it. Get a Twitter handle. Let's do it. So my dad convinced me over like the half hour that the show was on and he said, just write this, write my name's Alex Murphy, I'm 24 years old, I just suffered a stroke two weeks ago, I want to know how do I get myself back. And oddly enough, someone, it got to him and I got a, a email and then I got a phone call and next thing I knew I was email pen pals with Teddy Bruschi, this amazing all-star athlete. Wow. And yeah, and it was his first 
email to me that I actually printed out and I keep it in my skate bag. And it said something like, every time you do something from this point on, you are now doing it as a stroke survivor. Whether you're crossing the street, you're doing crossing the street as a stroke survivor. You're reading a book for the first time as a stroke survivor. You're stepping on the ice for the first time as a stroke survivor. And he basically just said to me, everything is different from this point on, but it's how you choose to 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 look at it. And he also said to me too, you know, I've had the same surgery that you have and I was getting hit by a bunch of big guys. I got back on the field. If I can get back on the field, you can get back on the ice. <laughs> so it gave me some inspiration. So what I, what I took from it was I needed that and I desperately needed that. I kept in touch with him throughout the whole first dancing on ice. I kept in touch with him when we won. He was so proud of me. He, you know, he was so lovely. We stayed in touch for such a long time. Um, and then I realized that he was almost having his own therapy with me by reaching out to me. That was his therapy because when I was mm -hmm. reaching out to stroke survivors myself now, it's therapy for me as well. It's selfishly, it is, I give them my story and I tell my story again, but also when they tell me their story, it gives me this feeling of like gratitude. And, you know, there is a bit of survivor's guilt that people like me do have that, yes, maybe sometimes I can't read the best or sometimes I can't always enunciate my sentences or I get my words confused, but I'm also really lucky not to be fully handicapped. It's almost like this really secret bond. It's like a club. I always call it, I tell my dad, I've said, you know, we're part of the stroke club. <laughs> me and my dad are part of the stroke club. My mom's not, thank God. And I hope she never becomes part of it. But, you know, it is this little unit. And I think that that is the best form of therapy and, mm -hmm. you know, to get through your PTSD and, and to be able to speak about it with other survivors that could potentially understand what you felt. Because every stroke is different, but every survivor's story is usually somewhat the same. Mm. Thank you for so generously sharing that actually <laughs> and, and and that support um, that people give each other by just sharing their experience is so powerful. I, I know I can sense it has been for you and you've shared that and we know from so many heart patients and stroke patients it's the same. It's, it's talking about it and processing yeah. the emotional part as well as sharing the kind of physical tips and hints that makes all the difference. And what a dad as well. So your mum's tough love, your dad does... Uh, the, 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 the blow dries and the Twitter yeah. accounts. I mean, what a family I affair. <laughs> I know, bless him. And then you know what happened, unfortunately, you know, when he had a stroke a year and a half later, I was like, dad, remember you got me that Teddy Bruski book, let's read it. And, and it did come full circle because I think it was last year or a year and a half ago, right before the lockdown, um, Teddy Bruski actually had another stroke. And I reached out to him and I said, I don't know if you remember me, but you, you got me through it. And if you can have one, you can get through it again. And he emailed back and he said, Alex, of course I remember you. So I think it does come full circle. And I think that survivor support is the number one thing that you can do. Mm -hmm. You know, I always say that to everyone when I hear about, you know, stroke survivors that are going through a hard time. I said, you know, do not, do not hide yourself out. The, the best thing you can do is talk. I spent five years not talking and I kind of, I wish I had but I wasn't ready. You're not always gonna be ready. Right, I know um, we'd encourage anyone who felt alone or who was ready to start talking to kind of mm -hmm. reach out and, and find people. You've mentioned your dad. How is your dad today? Is he all right? My dad's great. He's yeah? the same as me. We're both on an aspirin a day and um, he's doing really well. He's like probably, you know, we always say it's kind of morbid, but we always say any day above ground's a good day. He and I have like a completely different outlook on life than anyone else. It's probably really annoyingly positive, but we don't, <laughs> you know, we don't really, he, if anything I've learned from him is he, you know, he does not stress about the small stuff anymore because he says to me, he can't afford to, 
it's different for someone like me. I'm, I'm, I'm young. I can still have the work stresses and the, you know, the, the dramas. But he's like, Alex, you know, I'm 63 years old. I cannot afford to anymore with my health to be unhappy or to be stressed out. So we just, mm-hmm. we're just not. And my, my mom's always lived like that anyway. So she's, she's not a warrior. <laughs> Love that. You've mentioned uh, the aspirin a day. Is there anything else in terms of routine or anything, anything particular in terms of your lifestyle or, or health that you're particularly mindful of or do you now to look after yourself? I do. Um, to be honest, I'm just on an aspirin a day and that's kind of like the one thing I have to do according to doctors. Um, I am really cautious of what I put into my body. Obviously, I'm an athlete. I always have been. But I found that as I got older, um, certain things don't agree with me as much in, in terms of like they'll make me feel really tired or give me brain fog. And that is the biggest thing that I suffer from. If I'm tired, I cannot think clearly. And that never happened before my stroke. I, I just call it brain fog where you're just not fully there and you can't string a sentence together. And sometimes your words get jumbled. And like I will have anxiety over sometimes if, you know, if I get the numbness in my hands again or things like that. So I do have to be really careful. I try to eat the best I can. You know, I, I'm not a big drinker. I don't smoke. I, I'm very cautious of all that stuff. But um, I think the one thing that I have to do is aspirin. But the other things that I'm really cautious of for my mental health and for my, you know, because so much is your mental health is exercising, fresh air, right. sunshine is always nice when we have it over here in the UK, <laughs> keeping yourself on a heart healthy diet. Yeah. And know that you eventually went on to win, of course, ITV's Dancing on Ice Trophy in 2020 with um, Joe. So how did that feel? That must have been, you know, exhilarating. Oh, that was amazing. Honestly, that was such a good year. I had had an up and down year that year. I find that I've been really lucky that every partner that I've had on that show has either been inspired by the story that I have or just felt compelled to want to work hard for me. So I got very, very lucky with the people that I was working with that they, you know, Joe wanted to win because I wanted to win. He wanted me to win. He didn't really want to win it himself. He wanted me to have the win, which I think is really sweet. <laughs> that is really sweet indeed. And obviously you're um, still skating now, post-dancing on ice with your new show, Celebs Go yeah. Skating. So tell me about that. You're clearly having fun and loving that. I am. I'm loving it. So we have a new show out. It's called it's called Celebs Go Skating. And basically I take unassuming celebs and I get them on the ice and we just chat. It's almost like a kind of like a podcast on ice. Um, but there's something so unbelievable about people stepping on the ice because for some reason their comfort zone is completely gone and they just tell you everything. So <laughs> they're just willing to talk. They're willing to spew information. And I can't tell you how many people have come on the show and said, oh, that's an exclusive. I can't believe I said that because their brain, again, this is so funny how the brain works. They're thinking about what they're doing physically on the ice that they can't even remember what's coming out of their mouth, if that makes sense. Right. I was going to ask you, to kind of step back as well and just reflect I mean my goodness on this journey you've been so generous in sharing with us what's this journey taught you oh I have to say you know it's been a really long one if I'm completely honest I still feel I always say this to people I still feel 24 I feel like my life stopped and started at 24 you know I was a great skater at 24 but I wasn't the skater than I am now at 24 I don't I didn't love the sport as much as I love the sport now I didn't love my career as much as I love my career now because I didn't have the driving force of it could be taken away from me and I didn't have that like I didn't realize the impact of it I always say that yes all the pros on Dancing on Ice love their jobs and love that show but I loved that show I think more than anyone else because that show was part of my recovery 
of my stroke. You know, I was, that was what got me back to being Alex Murphy, the ice skater, instead of, oh, that poor Alex Murphy that had a stroke. Cause it was embarrassing and it was overwhelming. And I think it took me three or four years to realize that I didn't have to be embarrassed of it anymore, that it wasn't my body failing me, that I wasn't an athlete that had, you know, had something happen to them. You know, it just felt like a during that time of my life, I was embarrassed and ashamed that I had had a stroke when in reality, there was nothing I could have done about it. Um, and I do think that now time has come and gone and I look back on the career that I've had and I think sometimes you have to stop and take a second and, you know, you even asking that question kind of makes me go, wow, I did have a good career. I have had a really good career because sometimes you forget about it and mm. I, I, it's hard to say and it's hard to explain that to other people that haven't had a life-threatening illness or a, an issue or a disease, anything like that, like a scary moment in their lives. But it is probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Like I always say my stroke is the best and worst thing that ever happened to me. I'm I'm so grateful that I had it because had I not had it, my dad may have had a stroke without my mom knowing the symptoms and touch wood, like thank God he's still here to tell the story about it. And mm -hmm. that's, I believe, because of me. I swear, I know that my mom never would have been as knowledgeable about that if it wasn't because of me. And I know that there's a lot of kids out there that wouldn't really know what to do with themselves now after having strokes. If I hadn't maybe got to sit down with them and tell them, look, I got through it, you can get through it. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people after their strokes really think that their recovery is done after the first six months. And I would just say to anyone that it's just getting started. Like you're just beginning your recovery. I'm still, you know, it's eight years on and I'm still just beginning my recovery. Part of my recovery is speaking to you today. Part of my recovery is is speaking to an 18 year old, you know, who's just realized that when they had a stroke when they were two years old, now they realize they're different than other people because they have physical attributes to it. And I think that if if you're lucky and unlucky enough like me to have had a stroke, you're very grateful for every day and you can't really get over the positive stuff because every day above ground is a good day. <laughs> Love your family saying your, your yeah. dad will smile when he hears this. Yeah, and you he will. Are, so, so many people listening will be inspired by hearing your story and your, your positivity as well. So if there is someone who's kind of recently gone through that experience or has just now and is listening, what would you say to them? I think I would just have to say is, you know, this recovery process is not just a linear thing. It is not just six months. It's not just a year. It's not just the 10 weeks that you have in hospital. It's nothing like that. You are literally going to be recovering for the rest of your life. You are never doing anything ever again as just Alex Murphy. You are Alex Murphy, the stroke survivor. And there's two different ways where you can go into it. And I've always said this too. They were trying to give me my medical bracelet and it said on it, stroke victim. And I remember looking at it saying, this should not say stroke victim. This should have said stroke survivor on it. There's two different ways to look at this and to realize how you're going to live your life. And if you're going to choose to live your life as a stroke victim, that this happened to me, then that is a completely different path to someone who is living their life as, okay, this happened and it's over. I'm a survivor of it and now I'm going to start again. And I do think that, yeah, you, you are in recovery for the rest of your life. It is eight years on and I'm not there yet. I'm not where I want to be yet. Thank you. Well, I know hearing that will give people comfort, hope and inspiration as well. So, um, Alex, I was going to just say thank you so much for sharing your story for us and being so generous with your time and also your experience as well. And for all of your support for the British Heart Foundation, um, it means an enormous amount. And I know um, having you on this podcast will mean a lot of people also get to share in the story you've shared with me today. So um, thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure. 
No, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The British Heart Foundation is celebrating 60 years of saving lives through pioneering research. Stroke causes around 34,000 deaths in the UK every year, and the BHF are currently pouring £22 million into research on stroke, including 12 clinical trials to better prevent strokes and improve treatment and recovery after a stroke. We have, however, funded research for many years into stroke. In fact, the very first research project funded by the BHF was in the 1960s when we supported BHF fellow Dr Enid Joan Acheson at the North Staffordshire Royal Infirmary in Stoke-on-Trent to identify the causes of strokes, conditions that were very poorly understood back then. As we celebrate our 60th birthday, our eyes remain firmly fixed on the future and what we hope to achieve over the next 60 years. We want a cure for heart failure, better treatments for stroke, ways to prevent vascular dementia and so much more. The BHF have been part of breakthroughs like heart transplants and pacemakers, stents and clot-busting drugs, and our goals for the decades ahead are even more ambitious. If you would like to fundraise in honour of the BHF 60th and be part of helping us continue to save lives, then please visit bhf.org.uk forward slash birthday. For more inspiring stories from our high-profile supporters and our patient community, please listen to and follow the ticker tapes on the BHF website or wherever you get your podcasts. And to everyone listening, thank you for joining us. I'm Charmaine Griffiths. Bye for now. The stories, recollections and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of our special guest and not those of the BHF. If you, our listeners, have any health concerns, please seek advice from your GP or health professional. For more information about any of the conditions discussed in this podcast, please visit BHF's website, bhf.org.uk.